Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Chris with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Philip Piper with Swarm Fund. Welcome, Philip. How's it going today? Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, just came back from Puerto Rico where the uh, the crypto crowd gathered and we had uh, a couple of days of inspired meetings and you know, attempts to how to fix the local economy there and you know how to make blockchain work for that. I'm really curious about the Puerto Rico uh, meeting and like, other observations that you have while you were there. So, I mean, it was my first time in Puerto Rico, uh, frankly, and so I... I, I didn't know quite what to expect because obviously I'd, I'd read a number of things about how the local economy just you know had certain tax benefits and and, and how the how the hurricane had affected the the local people and you know then then there was a recent news about some of the crypto crowd actually sort of gravitating towards there for different reasons um, and I have to say I was overwhelmed with what I found there I mean um, there was a so there was a group of larger group of people that um, that was engaging there, uh, not just because of the conferences, but engaging long-term there, moving there, doing um, actively um, doing projects to, to help uh, locally. And then there's um, 
actually the whole question how this this actually embeds itself into the global viewpoint on you know cryptocurrencies digital assets you know how to run those operations what to what what can blockchain actually do to affect people's lives and um it was a different type of conversation that i found happening there that was very refreshing it wasn't the normal you know some people pitch their project and then that's it kind of thing. But it was really, you know, the crowd was there to care and to, to do something good. And that was, that was great to see. Um, I mean, we, we, we ourselves from Swarmfront, we had our own little project. So we, um, there's, uh, there's actually a redevelopment fund that we're going to be uh, announcing or we, 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 we announced down there, but we're going to be actually sort of announcing more publicly in the next day or so where, you know, we're, we're actually helping raise money to actually do, local projects on different ends. And we're starting with uh, a couple of projects downtown uh, Old San Juan, where we have a big community building that we're going to be building out for, not just for the crypto community, but for the local community as well to engage with, you know, to find shared working spaces and so forth. And and then and that propagates into other areas such as land development and, and so forth. So it's, it's quite exciting to see how, you know, private initiatives like that, um, but being fueled by community um, can actually do things out of the realm of government and probably faster and maybe more effectively in doing that. It's, a, it's very interesting. And I'm, I want to know more about that, that social effect and, and how Swarm Fund moves in to, uh, to fill the gaps, so to, so to speak, or even take over. Yeah, it's, it sounds sounds as if if we are the actors here. So so maybe maybe to to clarify, Swarm Fund, we are you know we're basically we provide picks and shovels and, and software to run um, you know to run security tokens that are backed by assets. So in the end, uh, it's a it's a framework that is regulatory compliant and where you can actually connect a tokenization or a blockchain tokenization with actually real assets underneath that and make that accessible to, you know, what, whoever the investor on the other side is. And in, in, a, in a better access, in a, in a less stringent access that probably normal traditional capital markets can do that. So when you think about that, you, you actually, you can generate a framework to, to apply that to, you know, professional assets, to alternative asset classes, to funds, but you can also apply that to a big realm of impact investment opportunities that that often don't have the channels nor the professional appeal to to reach to a, a global crowd of investors. And so when when you put this together in a more direct way, like Swarm does, um, they have a real chance to excite people with their story for those people to get involved and, you know, put put their funds toward that, don't donate or even participate in a, in a real fashion in, into those impact directions. So um, the actors here are us sort of building that, but more so actually the actors themselves. So we have in this San Juan example, we have a local syndicate leader that is a local, you know, a group of two people that actually have local um, roots. And it's their, it's their initiative that suddenly can find a global exposure and with that global exposure, obviously, possibly even the chance of being realized faster than if they didn't. Okay, very interesting. So I want to know a bit more about your background and how you came to get involved with uh, Swarm. Okay, so in my former life, I was, you know, I was with um, in the financial world. I was actually with Deutsche Bank doing private equity. Then I was at Allianz Group doing portfolio management in Eastern Europe and Asia Pacific. And then I turned into tech entrepreneur. Um, so my background is I'm, I'm an engineer in the business administration. So I, my, my heart was always in technology. And so I founded this this company called Proxemic, which was um, 
one of, one of the bigger data vendors in the online advertising space that we, uh, after seven years, then sold to to Comscore. And after after going through that, um, my like my 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 question was: Is the purpose in life to actually make advertising better the right purpose in life? And you know, you could argue there's a lot of money to be made. And I was always astounded how how sharp and bright the minds were that put their their minds to trying to solve that equation a little better, a tad better. Um, but then sort of taking a step back, it might have been just, you know, it was the right point in time for me to apply my talents to other areas. And I just, um, I went into mentoring at Singularity University and other areas, and I found topics that I cared much more about. And one of those topics happened to be blockchain. And so this has been roughly three years ago. And then some other coincidence uh, led me to meet other people in this space. And I happened to move next door to a blockchain accelerator. So all I had to do was show up next door for coffee and listen to what people had to say that were far more knowledgeable about the space. And they took me basically virtually by the hand and, you know, led me into that topic. And um, along the way, obviously, you know, being more and more fascinated by the, by the, you know, the, the opportunities that this, this type of architecture, it's not just the technology itself, but the type of architecture of empowering individuals can help society and other projects actually sort of, you know, redefine themselves. So it, it drew me in and never spit me out again. Very interesting. Now, you, at Singularity, you mentioned some other things that you're interested in well as well. Um, what were those topics or what are those topics still if you're still pursuing them? Well, so, um, I mean, this, this is, Singularity specifically, but those those topics, I, I I mean, they're sort of related to what we're doing today. But it's you know, it's how do you solve the big big hairy hairy goals that exist globally? You know, whether it's actually solving for food supplies in Africa, or whether it's actually solving for for water supplies, or what do we do? What do we do with AI? And you know, what does that lead to? You know, and the society effects of you know of fully automated uh, you know jobs. Um, you know, all those things were, were sort of touched on in different projects at Singularity. And I've been always of the belief that, you know, you can read about those things and you can educate yourself by, by having a curiosity, but nothing comes close to actually having first hands-on experience and actually seeing either entrepreneurs or other initiatives actually plow through that and try to redefine it. Because that touch and feel is much more impactful and it actually gets you really into the mindset of what, what is it that you're trying to solve for. I want to I want to delve a little bit deeper, just on a, a personal side, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. You mentioned you mentioned impact uh, quite a bit. So, how do you tell tell me about the generation of impact in your vocabulary? Like you you want to have that effect on on other people or projects? Or where do you think that started with you? You you mean uh, where did it start with my desire to develop that way, or or where do I yes. define where that starts? Yes, for for you personally. Why, why is it that you want to make an impact? Where did that start in your life? So I, th- I think going, going back and reflecting on the earlier parts of my career, I never, I, I never had the feeling that, you know, I was more than just a, a wheel in someone else's system. And that was, that was okay. Like as a young person, you, you start to define yourself by, by the frame where, where you're in and how the status actually in that actually sort of defines you, right? Then over time, just becoming an entrepreneur, I I learned that actually you can create things more more today than any time else before, right? Because you have much, much more abilities, right? You have not just technology, but you have 
you have the ear of of consumers to to say that you know even young companies can completely change the world and the way that they you know use products or see the world or, or whatever. So, as an entrepreneur, I experienced firsthand how how powerful it is to go through that entire cycle to say, well, I start with my own idea, I put it down on paper, I excite other people to contribute to that, I then actually sort of experience how how it is that a brand gets created and how that can impact other people up to the point where not only you know it has material value against it but also um people speak of that brand in the third person so it's almost like giving birth to something and then suddenly that 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 something just is is distant from you and and has its own life and that's hugely exciting um because you realize that you you personally or I, I realized for myself that I personally can can make that happen, and I can I, I have the abilities um, and I have the the uh, the way to excite other people to help out with those initiatives to make make those things happen. So, impact in a way is then the question like for me, where do you apply that, and where, what is what is in your lifetime? What is the what is it you want to affect? And when you look back in you know in 30, 40 years and say, well. What did I do that actually really, you know, had an effect of bettering the world in many different ways? And that's a big statement, right? But, um, you know, I, I think that's everyone's own definition of how that looks like. And, you know, whether you want to gather wealth because you want your family to be better off, that's one one ambition that people have. Or whether you do that and at the same time actually, you know, impact other people and help them have a better life. That was that was something that I was excited about. Well, very good. Yeah, that's uh, that's really great to hear. I want to kind of guide the conversation back to um, Swarm Fund and um, impacts outside of Puerto Rico and maybe in the next couple of months to year that um, it's having on society or projects that, that um, Swarm is involved in. Yeah, well, so it comes, it comes a little bit tied back to the previous part of the conversation. It's like, so we started thinking about Swarm Fund and what we're trying to achieve, you know, uh, by late 2016. And this was way before this whole craziness of ICOs that, you know, came as a wave into summer of last year of 2017. Um, so for the longest time um, up to that point, we were talking about things that may not have been so obvious to other people that they were exciting. And so, but we gave it a lot of thought and, you know, I come from sort of the, the school of design thinking and we, we said, well, let's talk to the constituents that we want to actually solve problems for. And they were diverse. They were the crypto investors themselves. They were the family offices. And then we knew that there's some part of the capital market and the private equity market that we, that we wanted to solve things for. So in that discovery process, I think we had, we had pretty much well understood the, the whole, like the whole problem landscape very well. And then we decided to then take the next step saying, well, let's actually find partners that actually would want to go down the path with us. And, you know, even before we define to do an ICO or define to, um, to, to define its go to market strategy, or even do, do the sort of the, the sales process process itself. Um, we were we were fortunate enough to have these kind of inputs, and so by the time that we actually went down onto the market and we did a token offering, we had pretty much the game plan already locked down. We had major parts of the product uh, partially working, but actually it wasn't it wasn't too far out that actually they would come to reality. So here we are, and remember our sort of our sales process was in October, and we launched the live platform in actually end of January, which is quite unusual in this space that so so fast you're showing impact and so we're, it's already showing that within the last 
uh, five or six weeks after launch, the amount of response was has been breathtaking. I mean, it's I think it's partially due to the fact that we are in market, but even more so due to the fact that actually sort of the market has completely changed and the attention of regular financial institutional investors in Q4 was peaked. Everyone decided um, that this is something here to stay. And re- regardless of the ups and downs of cryptocurrencies, people know that this is something, this is a wave that is happening probably faster than they assume to. So we're seeing this trend that they actually aren't trying to catch up. So I'm, we're fortunate at this point that we, we can have conversations with organizations that we never dreamt we would have um, at the stage that we are. But it's actually just, you know, just overwhelming. So when you ask about like like impact, we are, I mean, we have 35 funds that want to list on the platform right now, um, and that's growing by the day. We have 11,000 investors that have been signed or that have signed up to the platform and have been qualified as investors. Um, if we do our job right, we can actually make this make this really a community-owned marketplace that um, over time actually is owned and governed by the community. And we just laid out sort of the framework for that. And it's not us managing that, but actually the community actually happening to, to, to care about it and execute on it. Good. Now, you mentioned trends, and I, I don't think this is a trend. It's kind of here to stay. The, the regulatory, regulatory aspect of cryptocurrency in the last, last year or so, we've seen that ramping up. Can you talk to us more about your viewpoints on that and how it relates to, um, relates to Swarm? So generally, I, I would say everyone who's um, surprised that this is happening actually has been has been not really consciously you know, reading existing regulation, nor, you know, really understanding what what the markets need. So in order for a marketplace to become compatible with a lot of the existing institutions you, you and, and on also safeguarding um you know, individual investors, you need that regulation to step in and actually give comfort. Um, and the Wild West was great as long as it lasted. But even when when you think of the the, the rush, uh, you know, that that happened in the Western Times in Oklahoma came as a wave into summer of last year of 2017. Um, so for the longest time um, up to that point, we were talking about things that may not have been so obvious to other people that they were exciting. And so, but we gave it a lot of thought. And, you know, I come from sort of the, the school of design thinking. And we, we said, well, let's talk to the constituents that we want to actually solve problems for. And they were diverse. They were the crypto investors themselves. They were the family offices. And then we knew that there's some part of the capital market and the private equity market that we, that we wanted to solve things for. So in that discovery process, I think we had we had pretty much well understood the the whole like the whole problem landscape very well, and then we decided to then take the next step, saying, "Well, let's actually find partners that actually would want to go down the path with us." And you know, even before we define to do an ICO or define to um, to to define a go-to-market strategy, or even do do the sort of the the sales process process itself. Um, we were we were fortunate enough to have these kind of inputs, and so by the time that we actually went down into the market and we did a token offering, we had pretty much the game plan already locked down. We had major parts of the product. At some point, the stakes were laid, and then sort of the the normal authorities came in, and roads were built, and you know people became comfortable about a rule of law in that in that context. And and we're in a similar stage here. So the, the fortunate thing, though, with Stormfront was that this was always core to our thinking anyway. 
So there's been a lot of work that we did actually sort of even before launching into the market in finding out what are the, what are the sort of the, what is the rule of law of actually looking at crypto equity or crypto assets and how does that pertain to actually being defined as security or not? Um, and, and we work with, you know, excellent people in the field to now help, help us navigate that landscape at the same time to possibly even have an impact on the landscape. So not just passively looking at navigating it, but even actively trying to influence it. So we're hoping, we're hoping to be sort of a more forthcoming, proactive, um, a player that actually the regulators look favorably to and say, well, here's someone who, who's doing it sort of the right way and who has a real chance to actually sort of bridge, you know, parts of the old world with this new world and make it compatible. So we did a lot of things in the ICO that was unconventional. You know, we only took from accredited investors. We put in place mechanisms so that the purchasers of our token can actually participate and are forced to participate in some ways even to the point where we avoided some of the bad behavior to be able to be taken place in our context because we, we basically put in place something called a liquidity release where the token could not be traded and therefore not could be pumped and dumped right out of the gate. And that was all together with the decisions of our community. So um, I think we did, we did a lot of things in the right direction to, to make that all impactful. And at the same time, I do also think that the regulators have a lot of cash up to play and make up the mind and not just um, you know, blanket statements out there, but actually have a differentiated view on what is really this new form of a utility token versus something that is more traditional in terms of a security token. And this is a very, a US, not just a US-centric conversation, but actually there's a lot of other regulators you know, across the world that are making up their mind. And we've seen all these different curves ball being, being thrown from, from other countries. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it's exciting enough for people to know, or for, for regulators also to know that this is this is not something they can just suppress and and forbid, because number one, the architecture doesn't allow them to just suppress it, but number two, it's also it's so so such a promise and a novel concept that actually a lot of the economy can hugely benefit from that technology. So why actually want to suppress it only to, you know, keep people in power? What do, you, what do you think it takes for that regulatory aspect or the regulators themselves to, um, to catch up? I mean, this is such a fast-moving thing. At what point are they, I mean, they can't get left behind. They have to be part of this equation. But at what point do they start moving up to the same speed or a similar speed? Well, and, and that's like, it is at the same time a curse and a blessing to be you know, a regulator in a big country. Because uh, I'm saying that actively because I think that, you know, and the U.S. is maybe a good example of that. It's like the authorities move so slow that there's a lot of freedom that is given to entrepreneurs to try things out and to push the envelope and then sort of, you know, later be faced with the fact that it might actually be seen differently or with more restrictions, right? However, I think that smaller countries are having absolutely the upper hand in this right now just because they can react way quicker they have you know they're maybe more independent from more from more complex uh, considerations so you know there are countries out there that don't have a central bank for example and there are countries that actually sort of are traditionally very favorable to uh, to sandbox and let entrepreneurs try things out and then give a once they decide that something should be different give a time frame for, to adopt to that and this is different than the United States. And so 
I just hope, I really, really hope and pray that the, you know, the regulators in America specifically, that they don't do things that just, you know, push the talent and the technology outside of the country because it's here to stay. Very good. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting point. Thinking about flipping, you know, we've had such dominant powers um, with large countries uh, for such a long time. And now this is the, the possibility of really turning the tables um, in, in favor of the, the small countries, as you mentioned. So um, that's and I'll, I'll, I'll actually extend that argument a little bit. So it's okay. not just with regards to regulation. I mean, if, if I really take a step back and say, well, what, is the, what is the immense power of blockchain? Um, I think it can unlock, it allows people to unlock their talents and to participate in the value creation of their talents that normally would have been disenfranchised by the global economy. So I'll give, give you an example. So if you're, if you're a very talented, you know, developer in Ukraine that normally, you know, would have been reduced to being just an outsourcing vendor because, you know, the global economy of technology just gravitates towards Silicon Valley and sees that favorably. And there's some merit to that, too, because capital is here and because, you know, the ecosystem is here and you can interact much faster. In blockchain, that doesn't matter. In blockchain, actually, that one person can create something. And then if it's technology-wise sound and transparent and actually is built on the right merits, that one person can actually participate in the global value creation that that's, um, that blockchain brings. So my point is that in the end, you can activate a much wider and broader pool of talent and make them, or they can become part of the system. They can actually make the system. It's not that the system makes them part of it, but they can create that system. So I think that that is like, if I think of the unlocking of potential, that is like the, that the thing that I'm most in awe with is that suddenly we don't have these resource constraints in building technology and, you know, building the adoption thereof because it's actually driven by a much wider audience of participants that normally wouldn't have not participated in the same shape and form. Yeah, so it's definitely making it a, a true global effective kind of platform, if you, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better term. It's bringing so many more people and so many more players into the picture. So before I ask my last question, where can people find you and contact you online and find out more about your company? Oh, yeah, we have a, we have a bunch of very... Um, engaged channel. So uh, swarm.fund is the is the website. Um, on that website, you'll find uh, different channels that are referenced. We have a very active uh, Telegram channel uh, of a couple thousand people that are discussing on an ongoing basis different aspects. Uh, we have related to that, we actually have you know our own dis discourse implementation where people can actually surface issues and, and discuss them. This is also on the site. Uh, there's a Twitter handle that is referenced. The Swarm Funds uh, is the handle. Um, and I personally, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also on Telegram. People can just Telegram me personally, or I'm also on Twitter, um, you know, at Philip Piper is the handle. So, yeah, a lot of ways to engage. There's, there's no layers between me and anyone who wants to discuss something. Excellent. And for my last question, we've used impact a lot in this conversation, so I'd, I'd like to end with that. What is the impact that Swarm Fund is going to have on the world? If we, if, I mean, we, we can, and we have a realistic chance, and this is not pie in the sky, we have a chance to democratize finance. And Swarm Fund can be a huge facilitator thereof. I mean, if you think of anyone should have the transparency and the access to invest into interesting projects. 
whether that's the $5 investor from Kenya or the $5 million investor from New York. It shouldn't be a difference. And so if we can make that happen, and by making that happen, not just replicate what is, in, is existing in, in the financial world, but even create new projects that suddenly would have a chance to exist that previously couldn't, then we've, then we've actually done our job well. I mean, we, we're, we've really changed the world because suddenly the world is no longer driven by middlemen and power players in between that, you know, give you access at their, at their own will. And we've tied in a huge group of disenfranchised uh, world citizens into a system that actually shouldn't be cutting them out. Very good. Philip, thank you so much for your thoughts and all your, your education today. It, it's been a, a great chat. Thank you. No, this, is, this has been fun and any time. Definitely. Philip Piper with Swarm Fund. Thank you, everybody, for listening in to the Future Tech Podcast. We will see you next time. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.